if you're investing in a VC as a VC into startups, you're obviously looking for companies able to grow to about hundred million dollars of revenue. And then mm. if they have a 10x multiple, that becomes a unicorn in terms of a billion dollar valuation. The question is, how do you achieve $100 million of revenue, right? And assuming that you have relatively strong margins in this scenario, mm. then of course, if you happen to find that in Singapore, then great. I think it's pretty hard, but if you do find it and some startups have figured it out, yeah, why not? But if you can do that in Indonesia, yeah, sure, you can do that. Why not? And so I think there's this interesting dynamic where there's this phrase called going global and I'm always like, but going global where, right? It's not as yeah. if the whole globe is, it's not like a giant surface area. In fact, I think there's a very fast way, I think, for a lot of companies to suffer. So for example, we saw some Southeast Asian companies, for example, expand to that amp over the past few years, for example, C Group. Hello, welcome to Tiny Dragon, where we dive deep into tech startups mastering product market fit, even in the most unfamiliar markets. I'm your host, Elaine. Join us as we dive deep into the heart of tech startups, uncovering the secrets of how tech startups found their product market fit, turning complex insights into actionable strategies for entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts alike. Okay, welcome to Tiny Dragon. So today we have a best special guest, uh, Jeremy Au. Jeremy Au is uh, from uh, Monk Hill Ventures and he's a VC. Um, so I understand that Jeremy, you have been a successful entrepreneur and now investing in uh, two dozen um, startups, right? So maybe you can give us a more deeper understanding of your background. Yeah, happy to share. Uh, for myself, grew up in Singapore, then studied at UC Berkeley uh, for my undergrad and Harvard for my MBA. I've been a consultant at Bain. I have been a founder twice. The first time in social enterprise, a consultancy agency, the second an education tech startup. And I've angel invested in over two dozen startups across mm. Southeast Asia. And I'm currently a VC with Monks Ventures. I'm also happy to share that I also host a podcast called The Brave Southeast Asia yes. Tech Podcast with Absolutely. over 40,000 monthly listeners at www.bravesea.com. And I'm really happy to share my thoughts and resources about what's going on. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about Monk Hill, Monk's Hill Ventures? What's your focus? What kind of startups do you invest in? Yeah, happy to share. Uh, Monk's Hill Ventures is focused on Southeast Asia startups. So the team is primarily former entrepreneurs. So we are helping other entrepreneurs. We're very focused on supporting companies in the pre-A and series A stages. So mm. roughly about stages where the product market fit starts to click but also starting to scale and improve and enter new markets. So this is something that we're quite happy to have specialized in and happy to share more. Okay. I know that you said that Southeast Asia is not a place, right? Can you explain a little bit more about the complexity of that region and how it's different? Yeah, I think Southeast Asia is a complex place because Southeast Asia doesn't really exist. Uh, what we mean by that is obviously it exists in the sense of geography and we all share some common features, right? It's somewhere between East and West. Uh, there's obviously a huge trade route that travels between, for example, China and Northern Asia to Europe and the West, right? America. That being said, of course, if we zoom in one level deeper, and especially from a technology perspective, then we realize that ASEAN, which is the Association for Southeast Asia Countries, is a very large coalition of countries with very different languages, cultures, religions, economic background, history. Obviously, there are similarities and patterns and clusters. Uh, but we do have to acknowledge, for example, that even within, say, the ASEAN 6, the top six economies, which is Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, the Philippines, 
if you think about that, just to give an example, we'd be like, okay, Southeast Asia, and you're like, Singapore and the Philippines, okay, both speak English. If you look at GDP per capita, I think it's an order of magnitude that's different. But if we look at the also like yeah, economic base of activities as well, Singapore is very huge actually on oil and gas, as you can imagine, finance sector, as well as import-export, whereas the Philippines has a very different economic base. Mm. And then let's flip the toggle again, right? Thailand and Vietnam, they speak different languages, different cultures, relatively closer to each other than Singapore and Philippines, for example. But also very different GDPs per capita, right? So Thailand's GDP per capita is significantly higher than that of Vietnam. So, but if you look at Vietnam, their PISA score, their educational score is like you know, world-class, right? Especially for the level of spending that they do in education as well. So I think these are all dimensions that make it um, give you a pause because I think we understand, for example, when I was working in the U.S., we had to do market expansion from Boston to New York. And the truth of the matter was that it was tough, right? It was already tough to do that mm-hmm. because there's different geography, different operations, different clusters, different, some habits. But still, if you think about it, it was like same GDP per capita, effectively same education background, same language, same culture, right? Very easy logistics. And the same distance between, for example, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, it's very different, right? Even though both countries shared a similar history for so many years, yeah. uh, but they've diverged since 1965. So I think it's an interesting set of dynamics where I think founders had to be thoughtful about how to expand, but also mm-hmm. which markets to select and how to be thoughtful in the expansion strategy. Is there a pattern with the tech startups that you invest in? Where do they start first in Southeast Asia and where do they go to? Yeah, I think there are several clusters. I even say that I'll say about four major types, I would say. I think the first major type, of course, historically has been Singapore first. So it'd be a Singaporean founder, to some extent, building Singapore, because Singapore does have the highest GDP per per capita Mm -hmm. in Southeast Asia. Effectively, it has a high GDP per capita than the UK, and it's equivalent to that of the US, right? right? And it's always an interesting dynamic where a former crown colony, right, now has a high GDP per capita. But what that means is that I think there's a very strong population base that's highly educated, very globalized and entrepreneurial as a result on a per capita basis. Obviously, it's still a small population, small market. Mm -hmm. And so what is that these Singapore companies eventually work very fast to go regional or global after that. So you see, I think Southeast Asia, that Singaporean startups, for example, tend to be on the high end of the value chain, for example. So for example, you notice that they are working on one example be alternative proteins that requires, as you imagine, a lot of government support on the R&D. So you see Turtle Tree, right? You see the entire alternative protein space that's being built out in Singapore. That's one end of it. Other aspects like B2B SaaS, a lot of fintech mm. is being built out because again, they're leveraging Singapore's not just in terms of economic expertise and again, oil and gas, manufacturing, financial services, but also because the economy also trains up entrepreneurs who have that prior experience, right? Because it's hard for you to build a fintech company if you don't have finance expertise. So it's a natural cluster that emerges there. I think the second cluster that we see, of course, is Indonesia only. So you see Mm -hmm. that there's a lot of founders who are starting in Indonesia and they're very much focused primarily on Indonesia as a market because Indonesia does have 300 million people. It's a very wide base. So you see supply chain startups like Dagangan and Basket that are working on the wholesaler kind of supply chain from getting goods in, for example, tier two and tier three cities. They were previous guests on podcasts on Brave. 
But I think you see this, that dynamic where I think they acknowledge that, hey, Indonesia is at this stage and the market is big enough. So you see other things like agri-tech, agricultural tech agricultural, startups, like yeah. Iratani, which is doing that for rice and X, they're doing that for chicken. So lots of different approaches. I think that folks are looking at. I think the third cluster that we're seeing, of course, is I would say Vietnamese startups as well. I think lots of engineering. So they're very focused on, I think, education, for example. So we see marathon education coming out of Vietnam. But again, all these Vietnamese characteristics are there, right? So I think it's interesting to see some of the robotic startups that are coming out there because they have a strong manufacturing base that they have there. So there's another cluster that we're seeing emerge. And of course, I think the fourth one is, I think there's a giant like sea turtle or diaspora a dynamic. So obviously we see so many folks from Southeast Asia who are studying or working in the US and they mm-hmm. take the opportunity, for example, to travel back to Southeast Asia, right? So for example, you see quite a lot of Filipino-Americans or Filipino diaspora, they return to the Philippines to set up companies or they were studying or working in the rest of Southeast Asia. And they set up companies in the Philippines. So that's one example. So for example, another guest we have had is like Hive Health, right? Founders studied in the US at Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard MBA and then decided to come back to the Philippines to build a healthcare HMO mm-hmm. platform, right? For the whole of the Philippines. So lots of different clusters. I actually have another podcast episode where I talk about how these aspects are monetized, but I'm happy to share more as well. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It seems this, you, you mentioned the sea turtles coming back versus the local. Are there any differences in how they approach starting startups? Yeah, I think so. I think that the truth of the matter, of course, is that talent is like universal, but opportunity is not. And I think one thing uh, is that, uh, for example, a lot of folks who go to the US, the question is, how did they get there, right? But they, for example, got opportunity to take and get a US education. Did they get the opportunity to work at a top startup or unicorn mm-hmm. or see that for themselves? So I think there's this aspect, obviously, that I think a lot of the sea turtles have that breath experience. I think one interesting challenge they have is that, again, that we talked about at the start of this podcast, is that Southeast Asia is a very complex place and is definitely not America, right? America's yeah. GDP per capita is similar to Singapore, mm-hmm. but Singapore and America's GDP per capita, actually, they are like multiples of that higher than the rest of Southeast Asia. And so I think that they are both success and Failure stories that have happened from this, right? Success stories, of course, would be Anthony Tan at Grab, right? As well as is was a half MBA, right? And he saw mm-hmm. Uber success in the US and then he returned to Malaysia to start effectively a localized version of Uber, which eventually became Grab. But we also saw that at Gojek as well was also another half MBA who mm-hmm. returned to Indonesia at the same time and also localized and used Gojeks, for example, to as their primary mode of transportation that localized it. So right. that's a success story. But there's a lot of failure stories as well because you, you come back and then you're like, oh, wait, like, why is B2B SaaS? <laughs> it was like, it was like the classic stories. A lot of folks came to Indonesia and they were like, oh, okay, we're going to put a subscription price because we really SASTER and all the sub stacks are out there about how amazing a subscription price and blah, blah, blah. And it turns out like, oops, I can't get wholesalers or these folks to pay a subscription price because there's no culture of doing so. And there's no mm-hmm. understanding of how to do so. And also the margins are too thin for subscription pricing. So you oh. end up charging based on uplift or so on and so forth, percentage of the GMV. So these are all different approaches, but you can imagine it creates a much more volatile business, right? And so there's this dynamics that makes it quite difficult. 
Mm. Uh, that being said, of course, there are also lots of local founders who have just grown up and studied there and worked their entire lives in Southeast Asia, and they've also been successful. So if you look at so many founders, for example, the top university for unicorn founders in Southeast Asia is the National University of Singapore. Mm-hmm. Harvard is lower down the list. Stanford is lower down the list. And if you actually look at that top 10 list, obviously the Ivy League is quite well represented. Nice. But actually there are many local universities that have generated unicorn founders in Southeast Asia. And I think it's a good way for us to understand that I think if you're a local founder, then there's no issue with that. So okay. again, it goes back to this like hunger, ambition, ability to localize. Hmm. There's all things to be thoughtful about. And as a VC, do you look for tech startups who can globalize or does it matter? Is is it okay that they just focus on home markets or you're looking for them to expand as big as possible? Obviously, all of it, right? If you're investing in a VC as a VC into startups, you're obviously looking for companies able to grow to about $100 million of revenue. Mm-hmm. And if they have a 10x multiple, that becomes a unicorn in terms of a billion dollar valuation. The question is, how do you achieve $100 million of revenue, right? And assuming that you have relatively strong margins in this scenario. Mm. Then, of course, if you happen to find that in Singapore, then great. I think it's pretty hard. But if you do find it, and some startups have figured it out, yeah, why not? But if you can do that in Indonesia, yeah, sure, you can do that. Why not? And so I think there's this interesting dynamic where there's this phrase called going global. And I'm always like, <laughs> but going global where, right? It's not as yeah. if the whole globe is, it's not like a giant surface area. In fact, I think there's a very fast way, I think, for a lot of companies to suffer. So for example, we saw some Southeast Asian country, companies, for example, expand to LATAM over the past few years, for example, C Group. Mm-hmm. And during the expansion to Latin America, it was this very expensive endeavor, right? There are some similarities in terms of economics, but as you can imagine, like we talked about, the culture is different, the language is different, yeah. and then you have to support a different time zone team to go attack the market. And so in the end, it was just like, hey, we got to prune to the markets that we really care about rather than do the whole service area. So I think going global is such a, a amorphous phrase. I think it's more if your founders are saying like, okay, how do I get this $100 million revenue ballpark, right? And you're already at probably one or 10 million by the point you're starting thinking about this. So I think, and I find that the leadership team often very much knows which markets to go after. Yeah, yeah. Because going global is very US, right? <laughs> like US, come, especially in the past, right? So I'm wondering if going to Southeast Asian tech jobs, do, do they have that same mindset of wanting to expand overseas? Or are they more comfortable with staying close to home? I think that Southeast Asian startups are quite comfortable with expanding countries. But again, I think it depends on the specific country and again, their business model. Right. So like you said, I think going global is such an American phrase because I always joke, I always used to work on these Excel models for a US company. It'd be like, so is it America, South America, Europe, then rest of the world. You know, so it's like, and after they carved out China as one column, it's like China, rest of the world, then China, India, then rest of the world, right? The rest of the world is getting shrinking a little bit. And then going global is like you go to those regions, right? So I, again, I, I think going global is such a, I think it's a bit of a self-handicap in terms mm. of expansion. Would you say a Singapore company expands in Malaysia, it went global? <laughs> to me, I don't think some person will be like, wow, you're a global company. I was like, what? No, yeah. I'm a sick fishball manufacturer who has a factory in Johor, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to them, it's a one-hour drive, right? If there's no traffic. I'm just saying, let's take a step back here. It's just like, if what you're saying is our country, if you see, for example, I was discussing Valerie Vu. She's the founder, partner of Ansible Ventures. She's a co-host on the Brave podcast. 
But we're just discussing, for example, market expansion for Vietnamese entrepreneurs. Mm. We're very comfortable expanding to Laos and Cambodia, which are neighbors. Ah, right? Okay. So she always, the way she talks about it is if she goes to those countries, she can always find a good bowl of pho and banh mi because yeah. there's such a huge community of called expatriate or Vietnamese founders who are working right in these markets. Mm. But from Singapore's perspective, how many Singaporean entrepreneurs are there that are working in Cambodia and Laos? I think this is, I've met a few of them when I travel to the markets. But yeah. it's not a natural expansion path. So, for example, it's very common for Singaporean founders to expand to, for example, Malaysia because uh, of how similar the history, all the stuff. And also very easy to service. Yes. But I've also seen like B2B SaaS companies that have expanded from, for example, from Singapore to Hong Kong because mm-hmm. you know the way they think about it is more like in terms of GDP per capita. So, again, it's in terms of the development economic yes. and yes. the comfort of companies to pay for SaaS fees, then... You see that way around. You see a lot of Hong Kong founders go to Singapore because they're like, okay, I understand this market a little bit better mm-hmm. compared to going straight to Indonesia, which is very different from Hong Kong's perspective. So again, I think the way we should think about uh, market entry maybe a little bit more, if you have to look at it in terms of patterns, would be more like looking at corridors to some extent. And cultural yeah. relevance, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and cultural history as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, the Philippines and America have very strong ties, right? You know? True, true. Um, That's very interesting. Yeah, because I think in, in the US, uh, a lot of startups, like they first go to English markets first, right? America, Europe, and then Australia before they even think of other cultures or other countries. Yeah. So maybe, yeah, in Asia, this, there's a similar pattern as well. Finding countries that are close to, close you have relevance to, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think language is a big part of it, like you said, right? Because let's look at the whole internet, right? It's pretty much in English, right? And then there's a secondary chunk of it is in Chinese. But if you look at that, and then you look at all the productivity stuff, right? They have tools like HubSpot, et cetera. A lot of those Mm. these tools for many years was just English only. So Mm -hmm. you couldn't even access these productivity tools. Then let's talk about knowledge, right? Substack. American approach to venture capital, like it's all in English, right? And then you have your, even your ChatGPT and your AI tools, they're all in English, right? Because yeah. it's too hard to train them on Thai or Kimer. Like these are just subscale in terms of the training material mm-hmm. for, for AI, right? So language is actually a very key dynamic in, in Southeast Asia. Yeah, absolutely. So some countries are majority English speaking or predominantly, and then some countries where it's only, I think, a, a thinner section, right? Five to yeah. 10% of the population speaks English. And so in a previous podcast, I talked about being language locked. So it's like being landlocked, right? Some countries in the world uh-huh. are landlocked. They don't have access, right, to the ocean, right? And so they don't get an opportunity to have trade in, in terms of the maritime dynamic. They don't have a fishing industry. So mm-hmm. you know, the economies that they have are different, right? Because then they're very dependent on their neighbors because if you have access to the ocean, then you can really trade with the whole world, actually. Whereas if you're land- landlocked, or the trade even through the, the ports that's in your neighbor's port. And then they had to go through your neighbor who's going mm. to charge customs and tax just for but shipping something that you already bought yourself. Yeah. So yeah. I think this is interesting dynamic where you're landlocked. I think there's a lot of countries in the world that are language locked. So mm. they're predominantly not English speaking. Even Japan, right? Yeah. Japan, exactly, right? Taiwan. <laughs> no, yeah. they're not primarily, primarily English. Singapore is, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And it's, I think it's totally fair. I think I'm a big believer in being bilingual at minimum, right? So mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's something important about cultural heritage and so forth. But I think we have to acknowledge that it just makes a huge difference, right? If a founder isn't fluent in English, 
how are they going to raise capital in like growth stage capital, right? Because most of the growth stage capital, Series B, Series C, Series D, they are based in America, right? Yeah. You know, and you're expected to not, because eventually when you go IPO, you're supposed to listen where, right? You're supposed yeah. to get bankers and so forth. You need to have, probably have to be fluent in English, right? Um, and so there's an interesting dynamic where, again, it's, it's not a requirement, but it's a strong asset to have because then you're able to communicate and compel, right? Mm. Um, and so I think that's why we see, if you look at all the founders and they're all pitching, they're all pitching in English, right? Yeah. And so I think there's a, I think we just have to spell that out at some level. And so obviously it's not a binary thing. It's I always tell people, it's like, hey, everybody has the ability to improve. Mm -hmm. you know, Martin Luther King got a C minus in public speaking <laughs> in, <laughs> in university. And I'm pretty sure today is pretty much considered A plus, right? Uh -huh. But I think you just had to be thoughtful about the fact that, yeah, if you want to be a founder, if you want to be able to raise significant amounts of venture capital from a global investor base, yeah, we're probably all going to be lowest common denominator, be speaking English in, yeah. you know, to get that happening. Yeah. So for your company, what kind of like trends do you see happening now? Yeah, uh, I think that different opportunities that we see in Southeast Asia, I think first of all, the macro level is that there's a rising GDP per capita growth that is happening because of the entrepreneurial and economic activity of the whole region, right? Mm. So in aggregate, if you look at GDP per capita rising, I think it's rising at a faster rate than Europe, right? And it has fundamental macro drivers that allow it on a sustained basis without much government stimulus, for example, be higher than that of the US. So again, obviously, fingers crossed, everything continues growing. But if you think about it, it's crazy, right? It's really nothing to sneeze at. If an economy is growing 5% year on year, 7% mm. year on year as a fundamental lever, that means every business that you have should grow, you know, 5%, 7% on average, right? So is it because of the po young holds. population there? Or I think it's a function of lots of different things. One is okay. I think a young, I think a population, that's obviously one dynamic. Mm. Also, I think countries have really focused on, in general, on education, on infrastructure spend, but also has also you know, decided that peace and trade is a good idea. And those things are really important, right, in general, because when you are have a whole coalition of countries, uh, if you think about it, Southeast Asia wasn't like a peaceful place 50 years ago, for example. And so I think there's something for us to be thoughtful about is that I think we shouldn't take this for granted, but there's lots of different levers. And I think digitization and urbanization are so big trends of it. And that allows the whole region to be like rising tight lifts all boats. And I think there's an interesting dynamic where as a result, I think you see a rising middle class, you see everybody who's using their phones. And I've been working with so many great Southeast Asians. Today, I think they'll be considered Gen Z in America. But I always tell people it's like Gen Z in America, the way we use it is very different from the way we talk about Gen Z in Southeast Asia, right? For example, right. American Gen Z be like, okay, they're using TikTok, they're using Discord, they're doing a lot of gaming. Yeah, there's some similarities in Southeast Asia, like Gen Z, obviously, but they might be using like TikTok, maybe gaming on their phone, things mm -hmm. like that. But I think there's an interesting dynamic where, you know, having so many countries with almost universal smartphone access now is bonkers. And so there's a lot of opportunities where there's a lot of new customer behaviors that are being built from scratch. Just how many countries in the world, the America and Europe had a lot of landlines. And then after mm. that, um, it took longer for them to move to cellular. But some countries in the world, for example, in Southeast Asia, as well as in Africa, just leapfrogged the whole landline dynamic because the technology yeah. wave came later. And so this leapfrog streak 
to right. wireless, right? It's a level so, like the playing field also, right? Exactly, right? Mm. And it's just a natural wave of how digital technology cascades across the world at different times. Mm. But I think there's this fundamental level uh, that's driving the overall economic growth, right? Because everybody wants a better life. And if there's yeah. peace and trade, then <laughs> that's allowed to happen, right? If you don't have peace, yeah. then you don't get to keep what you make. So nobody's going to make anything because you're off getting somewhat getting what someone else is making. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If there's no trade, then everybody has to be self-sufficient and make your own bread, and water, <laughs> power supply. Then you're not going to move up the value stack, right? But if you have peace and trade, then I think people can be entrepreneurial and mm. build the business, right? Have um, you seen so any... Think, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah. Have you seen any changes before and after COVID? What's the big difference? Yeah, I think what's before and after COVID, I think Southeast Asia has had weathered it relatively well. I think that Southeast Asia in general, obviously, there's obviously country differences as well. But in general, first of all, Southeast Asia had already some exposure to SARS as a virus. So there was a lot of governments who already had some level of preparation, <laughs> operation plan that they had on a shelf to be like, right. okay, this is something that we think about and care about. That's one. But two, I think if you look at Southeast Asia, I think that you look at the dynamics of the population, healthy population, relatively young, also made it that intrinsically it was just less vulnerable to some of the effects of COVID, right? Compared to populations that are older mm. um, and less well in terms of health, right? And then if you look at the current inflation crisis that's pretty strong in America, for example, we see that Southeast Asia's inf- inflation has been moderate, right? Yes, obviously oh, okay. been uh, higher than normal because of the global dynamics and energy and food, for example, production in, for example, in Ukraine and Russia, right? Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world for wheat mm. and sunflower oil and so, so forth. Mm. And then Russia obviously is um, oil and gas. But if you look at it, still, um, inflation has not been that bad in Southeast Asia because uh, of the domestic agriculture dynamics, but also there's a trade and uh, dynamics in how they've chosen to do that trade. Oh, so, so you mean um, like food-wise, it's it's self-sufficient over there? Yeah, and a little bit more. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of trade. It's, you know, it's hard to... Okay. Get beef, for example. But, but I think it's something to be thankful for. And then from the whole pandemic dynamic, obviously it drove a lot of digitization, right? So a lot of folks were at home mm-hmm. and then they basically upgraded the internet. So I think a lot of people discovered online shopping, which was great for the people who do online shopping platforms. But also I think people started to discover more of the online finance because if you're doing shopping online, then okay. you probably need to set up a wallet. It's hard to pay cash on delivery and the platforms do not want to handle cash either. So right. those are like in tandem, right? It's, you want to buy something on the internet? Okay, I have to go set up a wallet. Okay, I'll set up a wallet to buy something on the internet. It's not really the other way around. Nobody sets up a wallet first. And you're like, okay, great. Now I have a wallet. Okay, now I want to buy stuff on the internet. So I think there's an interesting dynamic where I think we have to understand that technology comes in not just waves globally, but also comes in layers, right? You start out first with e-commerce. Then you start e-commerce. Then you start doing logistics because... The parcels can, up to a certain level, can survive the existing infrastructure system. But then once you hit a certain level of like packages per day, the system breaks down, right? And so you start mm-hmm. building up that logistics layer across the region. Then you imagine the wallets happen because again, you need to pay. Then once people have wallets, then you can start doing like lending, right? Because yeah. now you have wallets, you have a little bit more online credit history. There's an interesting progression you can imagine yeah. where technologies have was a technology tree, right? Now I was joking, it's like civilization, right? <laughs> if you play civilization, there's this technology tree where you can research. But simple as like, you can start the wheel first and 
only after that you do wheels, then you do horses, whichever thing. But only horses and wheels, let's you do chariots, right? You know what I mean? I don't yeah. you can't do a chariot without horses or wheels, right? right? So I think it's an interesting dynamic where I think Southeast Asia as a whole, and if you look at it also country by country, is slowly like marching along the skill tree oh. in terms of that technology. Yeah. So is it like because of the pandemic, did it have everybody upgraded to digital, like using digital money instead of cash now over there? I say that the governments have gotten a lot more focused on that oh. digital cash. So you see a lot of the central banks, for example, really innovate in terms of trying to push digital cash. So for example, like Singapore during this time frame, really set up the pay now network and really focus on that. So digital payments right, um, and to allow people to transfer cash one, one-to-one without mm-hmm. using Venmo or Square Cash, right? right so it's right. a government program with the banks and they have zero transaction fee, right? Uh, which is amazing if you think about it because from a government's perspective, it's like, why are we giving 0.1% or 1% to some random man in the middle to run a network? <laughs> Because you're basically taxing my whole economy, if you think about it, transferring it to another country, right? Probably the US, right? If Mm. you allow that to happen. So I think a lot of countries are doing domestic transfers and making sure that it's easy to do, for example. And then now you see that happen across the whole region where governments are pushing hard to allow for some level of domestic transfers. Mm. And now you're starting to see also cross-country transfers that now can be done on a personal basis using those same rails so I think Singapore and Malaysia just recently announced that now you can transfer up to $1,000 to one another without paying any fee, which is, if you think about it, bonkers, right? Because historically, yeah. just transferring the cash will cost you some bits right. of that, right? Depending on whether you're a large conglomerate versus SME versus personal. And now you can do that instantly rather than taking days, right, for the money to arrive. Okay. So I think you're going to see that trans that utility increase over time as well. Mm, Okay, okay. Yeah, one of the reasons why I want to do this podcast is because I think in the past, a lot of tech startups are like originally from the West, right? And uh, actually all the guest speakers that we're inviting are cross-culture people, East, West, cross. And I'm super interested to, to hear about how, for example, tech startups in Singapore, when they go to other cultures or when they go to the West, what are the issues there there is in terms of product market fit and figuring things out in, in a culture that's dissimilar to them? Do you have any interesting cross-cultural stories to share with the companies that you've invested in? I think the biggest cross-cultural issue you can have is not understanding a customer. And that's really important. Um and going back to it, just because someone's speaking English like you doesn't mean that they're the same customer, right? Fundamentally, I think you just have to sit down and say, what exactly are the decisions they're making and what they're looking at? I think a common problem I've kind of talked about is like B2B SaaS, right? I think that's been a very common problem in Southeast Asia. There are many founders from the US or US trade or US study who said, hey, we want to be a B2B SaaS company. And the truth is, I think if they're building this in Singapore to some extent, and I, I think but also in the capital cities of Southeast Asia. So you're like in Jakarta or Bangkok or Manila. I think there's actually a tin layer, at least at minimum, of companies that are willing to talk to you. Because the truth is, there's a lot of companies in Southeast Asia that are uh, working across the region. They already buy some level of SaaS, especially if they're an English-speaking company. Then for the male perspective is, hey, you know, I can use HubSpot. So great. Brave and HubSpot recently did a collaboration on 
sales transformation and growth. But I'm just trying to say here is you can imagine a scenario where if they're already buying a tool that's off the shelf from their perspective, then they already have that cultural attitude to be able to say, pay, willing to pay that subscription fee. I think the tricky part, I think it comes in two ways, right? Just because they're buying that tool doesn't mean that they have the same dynamic where they're like, okay, I want to buy a lot more. So the same, mm-hmm. I think America, there's a very strong culture to be like, hey, we're willing to keep switching or improving our technology stack. But in Southeast Asia, I think that layer is not as incentivized to do so yet because they just don't have that mechanics, right? They don't have that reps. For example, working at this global law firm and they literally had an innovation officer, right? Equivalent. And this person's job was basically to evaluate technologies continuously to see which technologies or tools could improve the productivity of the law firm. And I was like, wow, that's a very specialized role. Uh, But that's not doesn't really happen in most companies in Southeast Asia. Yeah. So think about it. This person is preparing a monthly report to say these are opportunities that we have. And so obviously, it's still obviously a tough global partnership to service and not a lot of technology obviously gets you know approved at the end of the day. But just to have that function just means that they're always on the scan. And so you can imagine some best of breed software that says, hey, we're solve this one particular problem. You can actually probably make it through the selection and sourcing process all the way to the bake-off, to the trial, to the demo, to the probation period, mm-hmm. and then pilot, and then eventually cascade into a full sale. Like that enterprise sales motion can really happen. Uh, but if you're looking at Southeast Asia, if this doesn't exist, it may be the CEO who makes a decision. It could be the CFO or CEO. So it's a little bit more complex, I think, from a B2B SaaS basis to be like, okay, who exactly in Southeast Asia in the Southeast Asian con- company is the one we should be talking to? Mm-hmm. But then you flip the switch a little bit here as well is next layer down is actually quite shallow, right? So what I'm trying to say here is that there's a lot of folks who are just not adopting yeah. a lot of solutions that's there. And a big part of it actually fundamentally is that because GDP per capita is low, it's actually cheaper to use humans and less painful to do that switch. So right. for example, if we look at like HR processes and a lot of like accounting and bookkeeping, there's a lot of accountants and HR personnel in Southeast Asia and their salaries and all of them lower than that in the US, right? It's probably cheaper than the SaaS platform, right? Yeah, exactly, right? Because <laughs> yeah. the SaaS platform is, wait, I'm charging, just imagine, wait, you're charging me five US dollars per employee versus my department <laughs> of five people. I'm just an example, right? You know, so you imagine, so one is the cost dynamic. Then there's a transition dynamic where you're like, do I really have to do this? the cultural change to get people used to the self-serve platform versus you know, mm. having a department. And then you think to yourself, am I going to fire this department of loyal people who've been here for 10, 20, 30 years? Right. <laughs> you know, and then, and then the pricing model is different, right? You're trying to perceive, yeah. you're like, Oh wait, I want to add 50 em- employees. Do I have to whatever? And then you look at this yeah. group and you're like, wait, this they ask the group. They're like, yeah, we can handle 50 more people. No problem. And mm-hmm. they're using Excel and to do all the work. So I think we just have to do this, take a giant step back and just be like, Hey, so you end up in a situation where cross culturally, someone comes back to Southeast Asia and they're like, I want to do B2B SaaS. And then they just get stuck because uh, they're like having this very long conversation about, Oh wait, <laughs> how do I transform these aspects of the business? And you end up in a very consultative mode, right? A corollary of that, for example, is a lot of people want to do product-led sales in yeah. Southeast Asia because again, in America and to some extent Europe and to some extent Australia, people are so comfortable with SaaS that people are able mm-hmm. to buy software 
without ever talking to a salesperson or with minimal contact with a salesperson. Again, product-led right. growth. So it's like, oh, I see the demo, I see the ad, I click on it, I play around it, I do a self-demo, I onboard myself, <laughs> I tell my company. And then I've talked I've talked to so many founders who try to do this in Southeast Asia and it's much harder, right? Because no- You need levels of approval, right? <laughs> yeah, you need levels of approval. So you're like, okay. And then two is- no one's going to log in and I'll give an example would be like product like growth would be like, okay, I want you to connect your bank account with this and we'll pull all the transactions for you to show blah, blah, blah. And then the US are like, okay, we're using Plaid or you know, some API that we trust to do it. Okay. You know what? We'll just give it a shot. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then Asia, Asia, everyone's out. like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Southeast Asia is like, what? We don't have that. Information. Yes, exactly. Is no one's going to be like, I'm not going to give you my bank account. One, two is my bank accounts. I'm in four countries. So it's not as if they're unified anyway. And uh, three is we don't even have the APIs that we trust to do. Why are we going to trust you with this data? And four is, is they don't even have the layers or infrastructure to do it. So I'm just saying you just end up in more of a consultative sales motion to mm. do so you can't do product like growth, right? And How do you advise your startups to find product market fit? What are the steps that they need to do to actually know their customer if they're coming from a foreign market? The awkward reality here is that I think a founder is the key to that, right? It's not, a, yeah, there's some quantitative metrics that we can talk about it, right? And so you say, okay, your lifetime value is three times higher than the customer acquisition cost, right? Okay, your net promoter score is like 70 or 80, right? So it's a very customers love you. If you ask your customer, if you left, how sad they would be, you're on a scale of one to 10, you want to make sure that the vast majority of people are very unhappy if your service was gone. So these are things you got to do. But these are all more like quantitative, like kind of board level metrics to measure that to some extent. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, from a qualitative basis is the founder, right? The founder and executive team is uh, the people day in, day out talking to customers. For example, one of the issues that we talked about on the HubSpot and Brave podcast collaboration that we had here was that we talked about one of the transitions that founders can do is, for example, they may end up as a scale hiring a sales team. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with hiring a sales team. But one of the most important parts about why the founder has to take some sales calls is that you're able to understand what the customer wants mm-hmm. and you're able to provide a demo to the customer. And then the customer says, you know what? These are the things that I like about the system. And these are the things I hate about the system. And these are the things that I want to see more of. Um, and so to some extent, if you hire a sales leader who insulates you entirely from touching a customer because you're exhausted and you're an introvert and you don't, you got other stuff to do, fundraise and manage a board. I'm just giving an example, right? But you can end up a scenario where the founder is divorced from the mm-hmm. customer reality. And so that would then create that dynamic where the product roadmap is increasingly drifting away from what customers really want and need. Mm. And so your product market fits starts to weaken over time. And then because of that, your sales productivity drops over time because it's not selling the product that you want uh, or that they want. And then you end up in a scenario where, you know, the, the product market fit is weakening, which is okay. But then the truth is some of these lagging indicators may not show up for quite some time, right? For example, when you do an MPS survey to say you like a product, it turns out they have to have used your product and then you probably ask them after three months, right? So it could be like, imagine you take three months on board, three months to finally ask a question. It could be six months before you start to understand, hey, people don't really like a product as much. And of course, the numbers go down a bit in your cohort. And then you got to wait, right? You're going to wait for the next cohort is six months. And you're like, okay, I've got two data points that my MPS is dropping. Okay. Mm. And you add a third cohort 
And then now you're like, okay, our core, now our NPS has been dropping for three cohorts in a row. But then effectively, if you think about it, there's effectively two years before you caught the fact that your product market fit isn't as strong as you thought, right? And then you're, so I think that's a very interesting trap that can occur. And I say this not because it's something that happens to all founders, but I'm just saying that it's something that can happen to a founder mm-hmm. starting to scale out their sales team, right? Right. But I think it's a good way to indicate how the corollary to that, obviously, is that if a founder is in touch, if the founder is close to the customer, they get drinks or go for dinner parties with the customers. Yeah. Know, and I always tell people, I was like, yeah, if you're only meeting customers during then if you're only meeting your customers during the Zoom call, or you, <laughs> you probably don't understand your customer. Right? Or you're only meeting them during sales meetings. You probably don't understand your customer, right? Like you have to take them out, right? You have to go for lunch or coffee or dinner or drinks. You got to know them. You got to hang out with them. Then you understand your customer, right? Otherwise, you know, guess what? It was just being transactional with one another, but you're not really relational about mm-hmm. what they really care about. So maybe having founders who are good salespeople uh, is a is a plus. Is that what do you look for in founder in founders? Well, <laughs> obviously, truth is every successful founder who builds a you know hundred million dollar revenue company, they all have some level of similarity, which is that over the course of ten to fifteen years, they've all become good leaders to some extent, good product market fit to some extent, all the caveats. But in general, I think you notice that all of them are really solid in terms of their understanding of the product, the customer, their team, what they're good at, what they should delegate, how they want to manage, some self-awareness about what they need to do differently and what they're good at. I think this is something that happens over time. And so these are all aspects that you notice as well. And also I think for them, also all of them have a huge spirit for learning and self-improvement. Because the truth is, and going back to what you're looking for, the truth is at the earliest stages in early stage venture capital, between now and then in 10 years, they're going to be super solid for those who make it. And they're going to have their own style and flavor to how they lead and do things. But in general, I don't know. <laughs> if you're doing like Dungeons and Dragons, yeah, your skill points are like much higher across the board. And obviously there's some variation, but in general, there's no glass cannon. Nobody you know, is only strong on one dimension and they're weak on everything else. It's everybody's generally strong, but with some variation there. And but then now 10 years in advance, your skill points are relatively low, right? Uh, maybe you're stronger in some than others. But so I think what you really have to look out for, I think is their willingness to learn and grow. And because the truth is, even if at this entry point 10 years in advance, you're very strong, relatively strong, but you don't have that spirit of learning. Uh, you're just never going to get there. Right? right. You're just going to fall apart. Right. And you see so many founders who have fallen apart. Right. Because it's just, didn't scale the companies, right? So recently we saw SBF, right? And I was reading the biography of him by Mark Lewis, who obviously wrote The Big Shot and some great financial crime mm-hmm. and stories, as well as some great stories, right? Like Moneyball, right? Which is about people who are trying to outsmart and outgame the financial system. Some of them are heroes in his books, and some of them are villains, right? Mm-hmm. But I thought it was just interesting to see that at some level, in the earliest days of SBF and his crypto days, he's just a smart cookie, right? He's smart, right? And he's hardworking. He works like Sequoia crazy. Sequoia Capital right? also invested, right? It's like- yeah. And so <laughs> if you look at the earlier stages of it, and just saying that there's a dynamic where he was building a really solid business and an exchange was correctly identified by him as well as other folks in the crypto space as a, a doable business model where you don't take on the volatility of the market and then you end up just 
servicing parties and being that middleman or platform where people can buy and sell. And so technically an exchange is actually the, the most stable <laughs> way yeah. and the safest way to be in a crypto market. And there were some amazing insights when I was reading this biography to be like, hey, this guy really understands the financial system at, at, at a level that is stronger than myself, actually, right? Mm. But I think if you look at that, you can just quite quickly see the story. It says like, he makes it work at a certain level. And then at some level, he just stops growing the company, right? He's not thinking about, he doesn't believe in organizational hierarchy. He doesn't think, believe in risk management. <laughs> he doesn't believe in financial controls. He doesn't believe in a board, right? Mm. He calls the board the DocuSign board because okay. you know, it's <laughs> automatically DocuSign whatever needs to be done. They're not a real board, right? And obviously, I think we'll let the financial trial of where he is goes out and so, so forth. But I think want to take a step back is we know what the ending of the story is, which is negligence and fraud and all these other dynamics that are you know being pursued in, in, in the legal system. But I always tell people, it's like, think about that, right? It's like at the start, he was okay, mm. right? So where did he go wrong along the way? And I'm pretty sure if you ask him... <laughs> If you ask his younger self, too early, <laughs> maybe. I mean, you could. I, I mean, but the other way of saying that is that he just didn't grow fast enough, right? In uh, comparison to the growth and the money that was receiving as well, right? This yeah. Thing. Outside in is too much money corrupts, but inside out is he didn't grow at the pace needed to manage that money, right? Mm -hmm. So, so you mentioned about keep learning, right? So now that AI just sprung out, like with ChatGPT. How, how do you see things changing like with the tech startups that you're investing in? I think AI is a really powerful tool and I think it's really transformative because at a deep level, obviously we've had machine learning for a while and then before that we had statistics and obviously we had chatbots for a while, but I think this was a nice convergence of these technologies and something that has made it uh, much, much more powerful. I really have the blessing and privilege of being able to teach as a professor adjunct at university. And I teach them about venture capital and startups and so, so forth. And it was really interesting because all of them are effectively now AI native <laughs> because it's like ChatGPT just makes it so much easier for them to write an essay. <laughs> I don't think- or, or Like even just is, within right? the last year. Yeah. And it just happened in the last year. And if you think about it, it's just like bonkers because one year, everybody did their essays by hand and then- and then now is, you can just do that automatically. And, and so there's this huge transformative shift where, you know, all these folks in their early 20s basically enter the workforce real soon and just be like, use AI natively for everything. And I've seen some crazy stuff happen. One person told me that he broke up with somebody by using a script that was generated by ChatGPT. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, never thought of that. I received okay. an apology letter that was quite clearly from my perspective. I call it AI fishy. Um, <laughs> So I can't, so AI Fishy is a podcast like that I wrote, but it's basically saying, hey, like it's a, a term I've coined where it's like, it looks like AI probably wrote oh, this, it's, but it's, I can't, it's fishy, yeah. but I can't say it actually is. Uh -huh. So I'm not going to claim it is, but it does feel it has that flavor of it, okay. of AI generated apology letter, which was trying to be sincere, but came across as not sincere. Or maybe the human just writes like that. <laughs> it is writes in a way that's not sincere naturally. So be it. Uh, but well, I think that's, yeah. Are your students using AI in a critical way or it's just essays generated by AI? I mean, I think it depends, right? And I think it depends on the person, actually, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I always tell people that I think it just brings up people much faster and people can imitate and emulate faster than they can do from first principles. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is, you know, I 
when I grew up, I had the benefit of going to a school that a school library in a country that allows these school libraries to be there. And then I was able to had a tie a tie every morning for school, a little fancy. And obviously I was able to learn in two ways, right? One was I learned it from the other people in my class who somehow someone's dad taught them how to tie a tie. And then you're doing it with each other to practice tying a tie. And then, you know what? I remember I had, there was a school library book and it was like a book on tying a tie. And so I was like, pull it up. And then obviously in person, you only learn one, but then now you're like learning about the double wins or not. You're learning about all the different types of knots. <laughs> Imagine a book full of tie styles. What a crazy resource to have and what a crazy library to have where it's, it makes sense to stock a book on ties. So you put that on side. And I benefited from that. And then suddenly the internet happened. And then I was one of those kids that suddenly had a computer at home. And then think about it, like you suddenly had all these message boards and stuff like that where you could learn anything. And now fast forward to today, if you want to learn to tie a tie, you just go on YouTube and you can tie a tie, right? You just yeah. click the play. And then recently I was like learning how to cook tomato and eggs because of and I was just, I watched like seven YouTube videos, maybe 10 of different chefs just showing their tomato and egg recipe, which is a pretty basic one. But I wanted to see what different flavors were. So think about that learning jump that just happened from there, right? Yeah. Because recently I was working with somebody and uh, there was this person, she was in the Philippines, right? And sorry, let me say that again. <laughs> okay, let's cut it out. I was working with someone and she was based in a country, but she was also based further out, right? In the... Let me say that again, because I know who's... Okay, and I think one thing I noticed is that, for example, when I work with founders in different countries, depending on where they're based, there's an interesting dynamic where I'm like, hey, I recommend this book to read. And then they're like, oh, I can't afford to read this book. And I'll be like, hey, you want to check out your library? And then they're like, oh, the library is five hours away. <laughs> Just think about that gap. And then you're like, okay, you know what? Let's yeah. find a, a, an online substitute. So imagine a scenario where the physical library is harder to access now, that knowledge than the internet, right? So it's yeah. kind of a crazy technology shift you have here. I'm talking about this because I think we're seeing this for generative AI, right? We're just, mm. people are now able to understand and say, okay, you know what? I didn't know how to make a startup deck, right? I didn't know how to write an investment memo for a VC. But now they're able to see the style and do that jump themselves. Yeah. So I think now it's a faster ramp. Fake, fake it what, until you make it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then... And now fake it is really good. And I think that's how humans learn. You just do more of it. And you're right. I think some people just coast and not really understand what's going on. So be it. And AI has been demonstrated to help lower skilled workers more because they are able to catch up more compared to high performers in many ways like customer service or sales reps. But I think what's interesting about this dynamic here is that I think it's just this initial phase where it's benefiting. But I think soon the superstars, the people who really want to learn and be aggressive about their growth, they're going to stack, they're going to use this as a foundation and then just stack on aggressively on top of it in a different way to make it more powerful. One interesting thing that I was reading was like talking about salespeople, right? So now with salespeople, they can use AI and scripts, but basically <laughs> yeah. they're like calling sure. like 20 people at the same time. It was bonkers. I was just like reading this case study and basically oh. they're using this AI tool. This guy's a superstar. He's look, I can call everybody. It's like the old school, right? Remember those old days where it was like people, the boiler room, they pull out the phone and then they'll like dial yeah. the individual numbers by hand. Now you have this person in the screen with 20 calls going simultaneously. And then the one that picks up, he just switches on. And then, and then there's a live AI coaching him in a conversation, telling him about the tone of the customer. And then he's like using this, honestly, a cyborg from that perspective, right? Human mechanical union yeah. to sell, right? And it's like, this guy is a superstar, right? In sales. 
So I think there's this interesting dynamic where I don't think necessarily that people are coasting. I think it's just that right now, from my perspective, is that with internet and AI, and this is a podcast that I'm starting to write this, I don't think there's anything now, at least in the English world, I think it's impossible to be a beginner now. So what I mean by that is no no such thing as a beginner. Yeah. Because a beginner implies, oh, I'm interested in finance, but I don't really know much about finance. Learn the it, right? is, <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, I was in a meeting recently and it was a very difficult technical conversation about finance. And so I'm just at another table. I'm the most junior person, which is okay because that's good because that means I'm not the smartest person in the room. <laughs> I'm the dumbest person in the room. That's okay. Because then I get to learn because they're all talking about some finance terms and so, so forth. And what I did, even though I'm a beginner in this finance world, I just pulled up my phone and I just was taking notes and I just typed it as, what does this mean, right? This acronym, <laughs> what is that? And I just sped out the thing. I'm just, I didn't even use Google. I just sped out, I'm just saying, all the terms. And I was like, okay, what does it mean in the context of this other conversation, that term that they use? And I just sped it out. <laughs> and so even though I'm a, I, what I'm trying to say here is, I don't think there's any, either you don't care about a topic or you are an intermediate person in this world today there's no mm-hmm. such thing as a beginner anymore at, yeah. at least in the digital realm i think in tennis or golf i think that is a physical layer that you have to do it for sure to some extent you know you always have to go through that, that beginner phase but for so much knowledge that's out there if you want to learn biology now for example like either you don't like biology so you don't care or you just log in and you just go to youtube yeah. khan academy and then you put one youtube video on the side you put chat gpt on the other side Anything you don't understand, just type it out in. You're going to be an intermediate biology student by the end of the day, right? Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because you just skip this basic stuff, right? You're like, what is plastic? What is an yeah. ester? What is an organic chemical? You can ask all those questions in parallel to a video. Yeah, um, I think people so have to be much more self-initiated, right? To, to, to keep learning, to upgrade themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think if they have that self-interest, the internet and chat GPT is more than happy to give it some space. But <laughs> okay. of course, expert level will always take longer, right? That 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 yeah. one is for now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Maybe just to summarize, what's one takeaway you think the audience can take away from this interview from you? Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway is that technology is just moving faster and faster, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that a lot of folks think about is okay, I'm using this technology tools, therefore I'm in the flow. And the truth is. I think it's about the spirit of learning and self-awareness that new technology waves happening and it will continue to happen mm. every five years, every 10 years. Like VR is almost here. I use VR bring you like once a month, but it's almost here. Like I think it's going to be one of those things that will come eventually. Digital money, crypto, obviously a lot of winter right now going on, but you can imagine scenarios where they can recombine with AI, with VR, different things. But there's also other types of technology that's happening, right? If you look at, if you're in a supply chain, you're seeing the emergence of more B2B models, financing models, earn wage access. So I think Southeast Asia is a really interesting dynamic. And you mm. know, wherever you are in Southeast Asia or in the world, I think you just have to stay hungry and stay on top of these technology trends. And also to be, as a result, I think acknowledge two things. I think first acknowledge there's a lot of fear because everything technology that comes out, oh, yeah. the truth is there are winners and there are losers, right? I always tell people, it's like, the job of seamstress doesn't exist anymore. Oh. It doesn't exist anymore. Look at Singapore, we're down to a dozen tailors that can do a suit. So I'm just saying, there's an interesting dynamic where, you know, that technology waves and the truth is it grows the pie. 
but mm-hmm. also it changes the allocation of the pie. And so I think there's a lot of fear, understandably. And so obviously we require like government action, societal work, community work to be able to redistribute and make sure that technology is helpful for everybody. But I think we had to acknowledge that there's a human fear that happens because when technology happens, it's scary, right? It's change. And the truth yes. is, I think every human prefers stability and comfort at some level. And you also change is always scary at some level. And so the converse of that is that I think in order to be in technology, I think you just need a lot of courage and a lot of bravery to really be able to acknowledge that fear and then keep going, which mm-hmm. is, it's okay to be a noob in AI. So recently, <laughs> somebody was talking to me and she's like, oh, I'm really scared of AI. I feel like I'm going to be left behind. I, like I'm an amateur in AI. And then I was like chatting for her and I was like, look, you and I are on the same boat, right? AI has only been around for effectively two years on a mass market. <laughs> like everyone's an amateur everyone is in new. space. Everyone's <laughs> yeah. new to this technology. The good news about technology is that everyone's always new to this new wave. Yeah. So if you're interested to learn, we can become intermediate experts eventually. But Very, yeah. it's new to everybody, right? So acknowledging that fear, but also acknowledging that is this, this perpetual treadmill, I think also gives us some wisdom and uh, freedom to forgive ourselves and let ourselves have that spirit of wisdom and grace and action under pressure, which mm. translates into what other people consider courage and bravery. But from our perspective, it's just simple like action, regardless of the climate. Yeah. When electricity first came out, people were fearful that they will be electrocuted in the house also. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. They, they killed an elephant too. And yes. everyone was scared. Oh my gosh, electricity kills elephants. And now <laughs> the entire world just runs on it, right? It's bonkers, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for your time. Yeah. Uh, how can our audience contact you? Yeah, feel free to go to www.bravesea.com. We have resources, training, and courses on how to think about Southeast Asia and tech. And it also has my details in terms of how to reach me on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts uh, as well. So it's a great opportunity. Awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. All right. See ya.